Like many white suburban Australians, I grew up with the cliché of the woman holding Aboriginal warrior balancing on one foot and leaning on a spear, which appeared on TV shows and on people's lawns, three foot high, cast in plaster, next to a white painted tire swan or Romanesque concrete birdbath. I had no contact with Indigenous Australians or their cultures. Their history and their cultures went largely unmentioned when I was at school in the 70s and 80s, a period that was distinctly prejudiced in favour of Britannia before Terra Nullius was dismissed by Mabo. We were taught a whitewashed version of Australian history, with stories of stoic squatters and bushmen and their conquest of an unforgiving landscape. Explorers were often tragic, such as Burke and Wills, who sacrificed their lives to map the unknown frontier and were memorialised with a statue on Melbourne Swanson Street. Our penal colonies' beginnings were romanticised, like a Disney gentrified Oliver Twist, and we all played bushrangers in the playground. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome back to the Good Reading Podcast. I'm Max Lewis, and today we're joined by Aaron Smith, a freelance journalist who spent six years as the sole editor, journalist, and paperboy of the Torres News, an independent tabloid that was the sole voice of a predominantly Torres Strait Islander and Aboriginal readership in Australia's most northern outpost, Thursday Island. Aaron's new memoir, The Rock, uses his time as Thursday Island's voice to hold a unique mirror up to Australia, our colonial history, and our gaping cultural and moral divide. Aaron, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks, for, thanks for having us, Max. It's uh, great to be on the show. So your memoir, The Rock, begins with quite a cathartic four-letter word, as you put it in the book, which sort of lays out your attitudes towards so-called Australia quite clearly. What was your thinking behind such a, I guess, brash opening to the book? Well, um, as uh, the Courier Mail, Phil Brown, said to me, he considers swearing this part of the Australian punctuation. Mm. So, I mean, anyone that knows me, you know, I, 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 I'm definitely from that ilk. But I guess the main intent of the, the four-letter word was an open letter to the nation. Uh, I wanted to shape the nation uh, to its core, but, you know, with a bit of tongue-in-cheek and that, that Australian iconic larrikinism that we, that we all love about this country, mm. but also... Just to sort of start off with a nice clean slate, just to say how you know unresolved our nation is, and I, and, um, and, I, and, I, and I give it to myself as much as everyone else as well. You know, I, I'm not putting myself in any pedestal here, but I think we have a long way to go as, as a nation, uh, apart from lip service, you know, to, to recognition, from from apologies to acknowledgement of country that is now sort of widespread. And I think until we do that, we are not going to be able to to grow into the great nation we should be. And um, yeah, so that's that's why I sort of said "f you" to the nation and myself and everyone in between. The Rock follows your time as the journalist for the Torres News, which ended in 2019 when the magazine merged with its sister company. How did The Rock come about after that? Had you started writing it while you were still working for Torres News or did it sort of come afterwards? Yeah, look, I mean, I knew fairly early in the piece I was going to write about The Rock. Um, I, I, was, I was an author before I was a newspaper editor. Uh, I became a newspaper editor to keep me in the level of poverty I've grown accustomed to as a writer. So I, I knew that it was a fascinating place and I 
So I started by doing a lot of research into, into history and delving into whatever I could get my hands on in those first formative years. But I, I knew early on that it was going to, I was going to write about it. I just wasn't sure quite what until I was sort of halfway through it, which seems to be my process in my other two books. I start writing Stream of Consciousness and then, and then the, the narrative arc sort of appears. Even though it's non-fiction, it's... Um, uh, it, it, it all solidified, actually, when former uh, mayor of the Torres Strait Inner Island communities, uh, uh, Napa Pedro Stephen AM, uh, said to me on a dinghy coming home, uh, he explained to me uh, the, the nickname that Thursday Island, the, the administrative hub of the Torres Strait, as the rock that was used by the bureaucrats uh, sort of disdainfully, uh, sort of as an allegory to Alcatraz the rock, and then that's when the penny dropped because it was the, the rock, the TI is also an allegory for the, the, the third rock from the sun because it's, it's a little slice of humanity and all, all the trials and tribulations that we have as a, as a, a nation and, and as a planet sort of played out on this little 3.5 square kilometre island. So that's, that's when it all sort of fell into place and um, I'd been writing a blog up until that point called Going Straight, which I then dismantled and pulled down and sort of took sections out of that and pulled my research together and, 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 and yeah, and it was another couple of years of, of writing while still working hmm. that, that The Rock was finished and it was probably the first draft was finished in 2018 and, but I was emailing my publisher with amendments to the day before going to print because things keep happening, you know, and I still write about the region for The Guardian and other, other publications and, yeah, I, I wanted to, there was always one more detail that I wanted to get in, so... I guess I was uh, very emotionally invested. And you mentioned you sort of wrote it in a, in a stream of consciousness style. So I'm curious exactly what you think The Rock is. It's not quite a memoir, but it's not quite a collection of essays either. What would you quantify it as? My first two books are our first person memoir based as well. And I, I, it was funny. I had a lot less of me in this one. And then Barry, my publisher from Transit Lounge, said, no, no, let's, let's bring more of you back into it because, you know, it's, it's what he wanted to read. I, I guess it was a lot more drier before B- Barry's suggestion. I wanted to make it a definitive resource where people could understand the, the aspirations and the struggles that the First Nation peoples have had and using my first-person experience to pepper, pepper with anecdotes, with run-ins with Prime Ministers and Governor Generals mm. to sort of drive it along and give it, give it some, you know, some sort of almost comic relief for my interactions throughout some pretty heavy material. I, I wanted to be second in the back seat as, as a back seat memoir, I guess. Although this book is about you know, the, the aspirations of Torres Strait Islanders and, and First Nations people all across the country, this book isn't actually written primarily for them. Mm. The, the, they've lived and experienced that intergenerational suffering and trauma. It's written for the other 97% of people that, that don't know. For me, it's the big takeaway, I guess, that I got from living in community is about that sense of place and of, you know, of belonging to a place and knowing country. As suburban Australians, we are so displaced. You know, most people don't even know the country that they're on or one dreaming story from the country that they're on. And without shaming people, it's, I think that the problem that society has mm. both in Australia and globally is that the modern society has lost connection to place. There's a massive disconnect. And that disconnect is leading to the imbalance to what I call the arse end of times. 
you know, and that, that disconnect is what's, you know, the industrial revolution, the end of capitalism, the, the overconsumption, the narcissism of, of social media stems from a lack of connection to place. And I think that is the one great lesson that Indigenous people the world over, and I've lived with, with Indigenous people from the Amazon to the Andes and, you know, sat with, with holy men in the Himalayas. It's painfully simple wisdom and it's just, mm. you know, love, respect, gratitude, humility. And having a connection to place, I think, is the first step to us reversing you know, this catastrophic downward spiral that we're plummeting towards and, and what, what I think is the last decade humanity has, that we're already a third of the way through. And I think that if we stop and breathe and learn to connect to place, and the easiest way to do that is just to connect with whatever the local mob is, is of your area. And, and it's, there's nothing, there's no deep mystical mysticism with, 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 with Indigenous connection it's just as an original fella told me the other day it's 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 all empirical observation it's 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 science's observation we've just been observing for tens of thousands of years that's all it is so we know how to read country we know you know what things mean when things Mm. happen and we know what that we can read that we've lost that in our modern society and i think if we were to get that back you know it would go a long way to healing and it's and it's something that transcends politics and you mentioned your, your first two books, them being Shanty, Bloody Shanty and Chasing El Dorado, which were both also travel memoirs of sorts. How did your experience writing those two books inform your work on The Rock? I guess um, my writing style and the way I, I approach writing it had, had pretty much matured through those first two books. And, and prior to writing those two books, I had experience in uh, the early th- 2000s as a playwright in Melbourne, having produced stuff for the fringe festivals, arts festivals and comedy festivals from my, 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 my years down there. So I always, I always knew I was going to write. And then um, when my, when the first book, Shanty Bloody Shanty and, and Indian Odyssey, I sort of became an accidental journeyman. I had to, I had to leave Australia and, and it became a four year traipse around the, the world, a year, a year in sort of Southeast Asia and Europe and, three years in South America. And, and from that, the travelogue style emerged. And so writing a stream of consciousness is something that I've, I've done for a long time. I, I know that with both of my, my first two books that I had a burning desire to say something, but the narrative arc was never there at the beginning. It always emerged later. But the, the important thing about stream of consciousness is that you capture the here and now when you're in it, the sights, the smells, the kinesthetic stuff of, of experience is the first thing that goes from memory. So the stream of consciousness was really about setting place. In my, in, in my blog was about capturing those moments, which because I, I knew from experience when trying to go back, you know, it's years later to try and capture that and to be able to place the reader into that environment in the visceral. It's, it's a lot harder if you leave it for longer. So I always go for that first. And the, the details and, and, and the what ifs and who are's, you know, can be slotted in later. Given that it's sort of a, a travel memoir, The Rock could have quite easily fallen in, into the trope of a privileged white person goes to a non-privileged land to discover themselves or whatever. But I think The Rock does a really good job of avoiding that. How did you make sure you weren't actively falling into that trap while you were writing it? By acti- actively acknowledging that's exactly what I was. Mm. My near seven years living in the Torres Strait you know, was an absolute pl- privilege to be you know, accepted by all those communities and those cultures. Yeah, let me let me go. Let me take a step back. On the first page of the book, I talk about the um, the four axioms of the bush, and uh, I'll just read that to you. The four axioms of the of the frontiers of the modern world: 
that move from the edge of the exotic other uh, throughout history, the people have changed, but the archetypes hold fast. So over generations, their behaviour, their treatment of the exotic others have become axioms that have been repeated to me various, in various iterations over the years. I've witnessed firsthand the harm and devastation that they do to Australia's traditional owners. The archetypes are the bush, are the missionaries, the murderers and madmen, the misfits and the mercenaries. Now, those, those four axioms, if, if you're a, a white outsider coming into any of these communities, you fall into one or a combination of those, those axioms, and myself included. And it was, you know, it was about early, early in the piece recognising that, you know, that I was a combination of those, those axioms. And, um, yeah, just sort of being, I guess, I guess another big thing about the book is dealing with racism and understanding how uh, racism is still impacting us as a nation. And and one of the you know one of the great things about understanding racism is is to to, to quote the book uh, White Fragility and it's about microaggressions and, and micro racisms and being aware it's about being aware and self correcting like we're all racist especially if you're white it's just a, it's just a default it doesn't mean that you're a bad person it's just about being aware when you do make errors and 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 self correcting and that's what we need to do as a nation so for me it was very much something that, you know, um, I, I was aware I needed to do. And on my first day of the job, my boss said, look, just just be aware that you're always going to be the black fella's lacking. If, if, you, if you're okay with that, you'll be fine in this job. It, it was about having your hat in hand and being humble and knowing that you don't know and having that approach. And I'm a pretty easygoing, personal guy. I get on with everyone. It didn't take me long to get into the swing of it and you know, it became an absolute pleasure and you know, a major cherished part of my myself and my my family's life, so it's about just acknowledging who I was, really, and and I, I don't I don't shy away from you know I'm a privileged white guy, and um, even more so because I've got to spend seven years seeing not just living in a community but but being invited into inner echelons of a community that most people will never get to experience. And I know the the book White Fragility as well also makes the point that white progressives are some of the most racist people because they are well-meaning, but they are totally getting it wrong. With that in mind, how can white Australians better engage with areas and cultures like that of the Torres Strait and Thursday Island without being colonial in their progressiveness? Obviously, read my book was a good start, but there's a bibliography in the back of that book as well. So, you know, depending how far down the rabbit hole you want to go, there's a bibliography there of, of materials that I used to draw those opinions. Um, and, you know, from, from journal papers about uh, constitutional law uh, around Marbo and uh, around other things to, to, get, to, to delve into an understanding and to also understand that black politics has onion skins like white politics and not, mm. not all black fellows agree with each other. In fact, some are completely, are completely differing diametrically opposite opinions. And just because you speak to one mob doesn't mean you got your head around it because there's going to be, you know, if there's fractions within fractions and... and and people don't agree. So it's, it's understanding that, that, that's, that Indigenous Australians, First Nations people of this country are an incredible mosaic of hundreds of different nation, nations across many cultures, across many languages, across many different countries. Each time you step into a new country, there's a new set, there's a new set of parameters to consider, a new set of things that are going to be insulting to some and not to others. And don't assume that you know a little bit means you know a lot. You know, the more I know, the, 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 the more humble I become because it's, it's the fastest way to, to learn more. There's a real thing with, uh, with, with white people, especially going into these communities that want to help, like the, the Bleeding Heart Liberals, as, as we discussed this earlier. 
is that they have an agenda and they often have a very mm. tight time frame. Mob, mob have seen this happen a thousand times. They fly in. They, I, mean, they, they, I mean, they call us cockatoos, the, the white birds that fly in, make a lot of noise, make a big mess, shit a lot of everything and then fly off again. The best thing you can do is just sit down, just, just sit down and sort of shoot the breeze, have a cuppa and, and just, you know, talk around everything other than you need to talk about. And sometimes, and people don't get that often, it's often what you don't say creates a connection with them. For, for people in these communities, that they want to see that you're a real person before they're going to you know, spill their guts out to you and, and give you the solutions for your problems. You can tick and flick your box and your program and go home and look great because they've seen it all before, you know, time in, time out. When you first arrived on Thursday Island back in 2013, from your sort of white suburban bubble, what surprised you the most about life on Thursday Island? The, the sense of community. The first thing I noticed, you know, I'm 51, was walking around TI, it felt like I'd taken a step back into the late 70s and mm. how I grew up. There was no helicopter parents. There was, you know, there was a sense of trust and community. And very quickly, um, you know, I, I became, as, as in most people, they get embedded in the community and they get accepted by the community fairly quickly on the, the Thursday Island and the other island communities. And, you know, it's like I, my, two, my daughter was two when she arrived and after a year or two when she was speaking Creole and hanging out with all the local kids, I'd go down low tide looking for my daughter and I'd look down the beach and I'd see an old auntie down the beach and I'd just do a hand sign. Have you seen mine? And she'd go, yeah, yeah, with mine down that way. And i go, oh, okay. When the sun goes down, could you send them back my way? Or my sign language. Yeah. yeah, yeah, cool. And I knew that my daughter I couldn't see, you know, in shark and croc-infested waters, she was down the beach somewhere playing with a bunch of other kids. But there was, an, there was an auntie, there was a grandmother down there eyeballing all the kids. And when sunset comes, she'd, she'd growl my daughter and say, get home, you know. And, and it, it worked. I mean, that, that sense of community still endures for me. I still talk to people, you know, there. I know you don't get that in suburbia. The quarter acre mm. block cut off by a white, you know, by a five foot paling fence where no one gives a, a rat's ass about their neighbours and his dog eat dog. You know, even coming, moving now to Cairns, you know, we live in a little. Uh, four by four block of flats and the first after, uh, the first week we were here we went and knocked on all the doors and introduced ourselves and said g'day and you know and they were like sh- people were shocked but we've now developed friendships within our little unit because that's that's how you know island people roll and that's what my daughter has grown up with and I don't want to lose that and I think that um, I think that's an enduring quality that a lot of people that come from down south go up and live up there take away is that sense of of, of community Talking about your work with Taurus News a bit more, I think one of the most interesting things was how often you thought that you would be the last person to report on a particular event happening there because you had to go to print and all of that, and then you find out that you were the only person in the country talking about it. With that in mind, is there a particular story or stories that you're most proud to have broken? It's actually a stack. I mean, I won a couple of Queensland Clarion Awards for the work I did up there. Um, I guess that the most significant ones were the work around traditional owners, registered traditional owners who have been locked up in detention centres, both onshore and offshore, and and Mm. some in cases even deported uh, under Dutton's amendment to the citizenship, the 501 Amendment to the Citizenship Act, where people could have their visas cancelled on grounds of character. Now, what happened with that was... um, when the Torres Strait, uh, when PNG separated from Australia in '75, uh, there was a formation of something called the Torres Strait Treaty, which which effectively resulted in a, a very porous border where you know t- traditional kinship can be 
connections could be maintained. Essentially, so there was a lot of people that were born in Papua prior to 75 when it was a, a still an external Australian territory. Um, and by law, then, if you're born in an external Australian territory, you're, you're, you're an Australian citizen by birth. And then under the tightening of the screws, which is especially so in 2014 under Dutton, a lot of those people didn't realise that their citizenship had been cancelled and they were put on something called a permanent stay visa, unbeknownst to them, even though they've held Australian passports, voted, served in the military, worked, paid taxes. And then so you're getting these, some of these people that in a cumulative 12 months of jail time, all of a sudden having border force rocking up, you know, when they're coming out of like, you know, one guy got into a fist fight and got six months got out of jail and before he could even get home to his family border force flew him from Cairns to Western Australia and it took him six months to get hold of a telephone to tell his wife where he was. Hmm. He spent two and a half years in detention and I, and, and, you know, I, I cover his, his story extensively. He's become a mate. He's since been released um, since the uh, High Court decision earlier this year that ruled that uh, First Nations people could not be considered aliens under the Constitution, go figure. Hmm. And, 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 and since then a whole lot of them have been released and, and I was there every step of the way following that. And um, I, I broke some of the first stories, including the Bird sisters, the, the nieces of Nancy Bird Wharton, who's a famous aviator who went on the run, um, who had no criminal history, but they were told that they were no longer Australian citizens. And that, that went gangbusters. So that, that, that was some of my most proudest moments. But I guess the moment you were talking about, um, about breaking stories before, one of the most interesting ones was uh, when Tony Abbott came up to the Torres Strait in 2015. And um, it was at a time when they were locking down on media. And despite my multiple attempts to try and get onto the, the, the junket, I'd been declined. But when community heard that I wasn't there, they snuck me on planes, boats, and in four-wheel drives. And I was everywhere the Prime Minister was before the Prime Minister was, including the places that the other media weren't, media weren't allowed to be, to be seen. And I remember being down on Murray Island, just down from the community hall where Justice Mohannan had held the High Court in 1989 leading up to the Mabo uh, uh, ruling of Terranolius. And standing there on the beach, just near there, and there was the media scrum, and Abbott compared himself to Nixon uh, and how Nixon bridged the gap with China. And this is a week after Bishopgate. Um, yeah. and, I, and I thought, ah, oh, fuck, I'm, not, I'm, I'm, I'm four days off print. Everyone's going to make the connection about Bishopgate and his, com his comparison to, to Nixon. No one, no one picked up on it. I'm the only one in the country that wrote about it. I'm also the only one that wrote about when he said uh, in front of a whole heap of school kids that it's unlikely any of them ever become doctors or lawyers. Um, and I, I happen to know both a doctor and a lawyer from, mm. from Mer Island since then. And you know, it, that, that were some of the things that I picked up. And on that Bishopgate thing too, I mean, I, I also covered how uh, three Blackhawk choppers had flown up from Townsville at a cost of $30,000 an hour, six and a half hours each way. So one and a half mil round trip. They got sent straight back because of Bishopgate. And I'm, I'm the only one that talked about that. And in fact, that was raised in the Senate's Estimate Committee by Senator Janet Lucas for a please explain because everyone was complaining that the visit cost 200,000 200, bucks. I'm going, what about the one and a half million for the Blackhawks that weren't used, that never made the, the budget? Yes, I could go on, but that's that was probably my, my, my most enjoyable moment on the job. With your time at Taurus News behind you and now The Rock uh, in the world, what are you working on now in your career? I've got a couple of projects on the go. So, um, 
after the rock is launched and, and, and early next year, I, I do have, uh, I'm going to move away from memoirs. Um, I'm going to do a composite of all the characters I, I know from my earlier life. I haven't written prior to 2005, primarily because I was just too wild. And yeah. um, there's th- things and circles and people in, in, in very sketchy places that I knew in, in the early 90s hanging out in Melbourne. Um, I, I probably can't write about. So I'm, I'm going to be working on a, uh, a series of books or even possibly a screenplay a, around a, uh, a character who's a journalist, kind of like Rake, mm. but a journo. And I'm also working on, on a young adult's book as well, um, which is principally for my daughter, who's now nine and revolves around a, a story we've been telling each other at bedtime for, for years. So, uh, yeah, so that, that, that's what I'm working on now. But I'm going to be looking more at screenplays as well. I, I, I think I write quite visually and I'd, I'd like to break into that medium. Again, I've done some sort of guerrilla filmmaking in my younger day, but I'd, I'd like to sort of move back into that sort of area. And I will continue to write as a journalist. I, I still write for The Guardian and SBS Online from time to time and, and the Australian Geographic magazine and the more sciencey sort of environmental stuff. So... I'll be keeping my hand in with that um, moving forward. But, yeah, when, when my wife lets me uh, um, yeah, delve off into my writing spider's corner again after some quality family time, you know, I, which I, I have to mention, that I do owe everything to my wife um, who has been there every step of the way in the last decade of my writing career and um, a very patient and understanding woman. So um, it's good to have good support behind you when you're a writer because it can be a very lonely craft and a long time between paychecks. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolute pleasure, Max. And again, thanks for your time.